Next on Abounding Grace, receive a brilliant picture of Jesus through the tabernacle. This is amazing grace. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us today and welcome to another Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor will be along shortly and we'll be continuing our series in Hebrews with a stop at chapter 9. Today and the rest of this week, we're going to bring you a series on the tabernacle. You'll not only learn what it is, but how it's a picture or type of Jesus. It's something the Hebrews needed to understand, and we do too. So let's join Pastor Ed. Exodus chapter 25 and Hebrews chapter 9, as we'll start in Hebrews in a Bible study that I've entitled, Jesus and the Tabernacle, Part 1. Jesus and the Tabernacle, Part 1. We're in a study verse by verse through the book of Hebrews, and we have finished chapter 8, which is the highlight and the pinnacle of Hebrews. It's the chapter that introduces to us and emphasizes the new covenant that superseded the Old Covenant. And in chapter 9, we move on to the superiority of Jesus over the tabernacle, which is an interesting concept because I don't think many of us really think that way. Uh, we don't really even think about us, uh, equating the tabernacle to Jesus. Now, we may have the, a little bit of how we might think that today is, is that this is just a building. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's not a special building. It's just a building. And what makes it special is our worship of Jesus Christ in it. That what makes the building special is that we use it for Jesus. And so I guess we could say, we probably don't think this way too much, but I guess we could say that Jesus is greater than the building. And I know that's like obvious, but it isn't so obvious to people that are hung up on tradition. That it isn't so, things aren't so obvious to people that are hung up on their own, you know, maybe caught by their emotions or as we learned, they're backsliding and they don't care about these things. But for the Hebrews, they, they needed to understand not only was Jesus the greater than the tabernacle, but, but Jesus was the fulfillment of the tabernacle, which tells us that the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus Christ. And I want to unfold that for you from the text. But notice with me in chapter 9 of Hebrews, just to know where, where we're headed. And this will be our first study in Hebrews when we finish this series on the tabernacle. But notice in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant and the ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were the golden pot that had the manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
Now, what Paul's chosen not to speak in detail in Hebrews, we're going to spend some detailed time looking at so that you can have a concept. Now, this is something they would know readily. This was part of their worship system. But the first thing you need to understand is the tabernacle is not the temple. Those are two separate buildings. As a matter of fact, there was more than one temple. There was the temple of Solomon, and then that was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt under the time of Nehemiah. And then you have Herod come along, and he didn't rebuild the temple. He remodeled it and expanded it and made it much bigger. Then that temple was destroyed, and now there's coming a third temple. The tabernacle is not the temple. The tabernacle was given to the children of Israel, that fledgling growing nation group of people that was delivered from slavery in Egypt. And you guys remember their leader. His name was Moses. So that's where we get the tabernacle. It was given to them as a place of worship. Come back now to Exodus chapter 25 as we start to learn about this tabernacle. Now, you Bible students, you will find something very interesting in the book of Hebrews. The temple is not mentioned in Hebrews. It's not mentioned, but the sanctuary or the tabernacle is often mentioned. And that's because the tabernacle was the original place of worship for the children of Israel. Now, when you think of tabernacle again, we don't have much of a frame of reference today. In your mind, just think of it this way, a portable worship tent. Because that's what it was, a portable worship tent. That as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, they were able to, to put down their roots to rest and set up the tabernacle for worship. And then when it was time to go, they'd pack it up and take it with them. And it was given to Moses to give to the people very specific instructions on how to build it and what to use. So Exodus 25 is a very high point in the study of the book of Exodus. It's that place where the children of Israel have affirmed their dedication to following God. They have just affirmed their agreement. And we learned last time that agreement in the Bible is the word covenant. They just agreed to the covenant with God. They're excited. They're ready to live in what's known as a theocracy. They want to live with God as their head. And so they're at this place and God tells them and gives them instruction on what to do. Notice in verse 1 of Exodus 25. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they might bring me an offering. From everyone who gives willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen thread, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. The word from God through Moses was for the people to bring the supplies, to bring the best. It was for them to be prepared to sacrificially give on behalf of the mutual worship of this new nation. And he wanted them to build a tabernacle. Notice the purpose in verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And so the tabernacle becomes a type and a picture of Jesus Christ. All of its pieces point to the coming Messiah. Each one of them that we'll look at in coming studies one by one. But I want to show you something, and you're probably familiar with this because we've looked at it, but just for sake of reminder, go to John chapter 1 with me. John chapter 1, because John says something very interesting about Jesus Christ in verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. Just to show you that this is a theme throughout the Bible, notice what John says of Jesus in John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, because we've looked at this verse a few times, you may already have done this, but circle the word dwelt to help you remember. You could better translate that, or it could be understood as that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. It's actually a reference to his connection to the temporary tabernacle. And there's some, some illustrations in a general sense for you note-takers comparing Jesus to the tabernacle. Like, for example, number one, the tabernacle was temporary. It served a specific purpose for a specific time. Later on, the temple would come, and later on, Jesus would come. Well, Jesus, too, he only dwelt for us or dwelt with us for a short time, about 33 years. And his time on earth was temporary. And once he fulfilled his purpose, he ascended into heaven. Secondly, the tabernacle was in the wilderness. That's when it was used. Jesus, too, our Lord, dwelt in the wilderness. The Bible says that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And even though he had places like Capernaum and areas where that were his home base, he dwelt in the wilderness, not even having a place to lay his head. Number three, the tabernacle was humble in appearance. Like when you saw the tabernacle, it looked like a big tent. It wasn't very impressive. It was covered in animal skins and looked similar to many of the tents that were being used by the people. Well, Jesus, the Bible says, was also humble in appearance, taking on the form of a servant. Not only that, but number four, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place among men. It was the place, as we saw in verse eight, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Exodus 25, verse eight. Well, Jesus, one of his names were given in Isaiah was Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And he is a place where we now, is the only, he's the only mediator. So that not is he with us, but now he dwells among us and he's the only mediator between God and man. That's the place where God meets us is in Jesus Christ. And then finally, number five, the tabernacle is the place that provided the sacrifice for sin. And it was in the tabernacle where daily offerings for sin of the nation were offered, but Jesus Christ on the cross was the place of sacrifice for all sin. So there's a lot of comparison in a general way, and then we'll see in a specific way all of the pieces. Now pick up again in verse 1 as we see the beginning of the tabernacle where it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. 
The first thing you notice is that in order for the tabernacle to be built, the resources and supplies would come from God through his people. That Moses was to tell the people, bring the stuff so that we can build this tabernacle, this sanctuary. That the building of and the assembling of and the creation of this tabernacle would involve the people and their sacrificial, willing giving. Don't miss that in verse 1. That you were to bring your offering with a willing heart, not against your will and not forcibly. And this is so different sometimes than what we hear within Christianity, you know, what we hear within perhaps televangelists on YouTube now where the, the idea of giving is always tied to some greed or, you know, give, give, give so that you'll have so much more and you'll have a hundredfold and a thousandfold. It, it really has been such a long time since I have been able to watch on Christian TV any of those Athons, whatever they call them, you know, all those bagathons that they do, and they have a guy at the piano saying all kinds of stuff, making stuff up as he goes. I don't know about you, but I can't stomach it. It frustrates me, just as a believer, let alone a pastor. It just frustrates me. It's just not true. Giving unto the Lord is a true and important part of our spiritual life, it's an act of worship. But it's not to be done by twisting your arm and promising you some weird, finding some obscure passage somewhere, and then using the numbers to twist around the numbers so that, you know, if you give, according to Ezekiel 37.8, you'll have a 37.8 return on your money or whatever it is. It's just not from the Lord. Here, here is the heart of God. And I, I guess you could say it this way. Here's the heart of God. God says this to us as his followers. I've given you everything. That's God's voice to us. I've given you everything. Now, some of you don't believe that. Some of you just don't believe that everything you have came from God. You know, the Bible teaches it, but I think just practically, we'll just take you back. We'll take you back to the birthing room. Do you remember when you were there in the birthing room? And you came out of your mama, you remember that? You were there, you should have a good memory of that day. When you were delivered out of the womb, you were absolutely naked. You had no jewelry. You didn't have an eye watch on. You didn't have a baseball hat of your favorite team, the Dodgers on. You didn't have anything. You had nothing. You came into this world with nothing. And your first scream out of your mouth was you were speaking in tongues. And the interpretation was, Give me stuff. I have nothing. And they wrapped you, put a little hat on you, and thus began your life. The Bible says, what do you have that you haven't been given? But because we live in such an industrious world, because we do work very hard, because we receive a paycheck, because of that, that are actually wages in exchange for hard work, you know, you do that long enough, you begin to think that, well, you know, what I have, I work for. What I have, and, and that's only secondary. Of course you work for it. Of course you work hard. Uh, praise God, God values hard work. He encourages hard work. That's not the point. The point is, is that for some reason, we think what we have, we own. And it actually isn't ours at all. All of it. I mean, anything over and above 
what you came into this world with. And even, even then, if you think about it, even then in your birth, life was given to you as a gift from God. It's not even your life or my life to live. Some of the greatest wrestlings in your flesh and mine is when I choose to live my own way, not what God desires for me. That's the spirit in the flesh. And so the, the, the call to the people was, you guys come and give. And give your best and give willingly. It, this sense of willingness is all throughout Exodus. Go to chapter 35 with me. Willingly is so vital. Like you've got to be willing to support and to give as unto the Lord. Notice in verse 5 of chapter 35. I mean, this is such a cool chapter uh, because it says, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. This is 35.5. Whoever is of, what does your Bible say? A willing heart, let him bring to him an offering of the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. And he repeats it again. Jump to verse 21. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was, what does your Bible say? Willing. Mark it. Their heart were stirred, and they were willing. They brought the Lord's offering. Look at verse 22. Then came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and they brought earrings and nose rings. Thanks for the nose rings. Uh, but they brought them. Rings, necklaces, jewelry of gold. Check, check out verse 29. Then the children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord had done. It was free will. It was willing. It was stirred hearts. It was pe people connected to their God. So much so. Check this out in chapter 36. So much so. Notice in chapter 36, it says, verse 6, So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from giving, for the material that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Now, I've been pastoring for a long time, and God has never had us say that. It's too much. Here's the children of Israel, and God is calling to everyone that has a willing heart. Now, I realize that not everybody has a willing heart, and that's just a bummer to hear, and it's a bummer to see. I know that because not everybody gives. Not everybody tithes. Not anybody, you know, some of you haven't given anything to God in, who knows, forever. You can use the front legs. You just, you, you've become so tight-fisted with what you have that when a call goes out to say, hey, anybody that has a willing heart, you automatically go, well, I don't have a willing heart, so, so I'm done. But for the sake of what God's stirring up in our lives, the Spirit of God so moved on the people and the children of Israel that Moses told them, stop. You've fulfilled everything that we've needed. We have all that we need in order to build the tabernacle. Now, Paul touches on this, Paul the Apostle, in the New Testament. So would you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? Now, we've done much deeper studies on giving as a church, and so you can look at those through 2 Corinthians um, that in, in that section there. Now, some of you I also realized last night, like, this is your first, you, you visited our church in Easter, and now you, this is your very first service with us, and you're like, I knew it, honey. All they would do is ask for money. <laughs> and, and that's just, there, they, there we are again. And, and so I, I won't ask for anything from you that the Lord doesn't ask. Uh, and, you know, we won't manipulate you here. We won't twist your arm here. 
And if you've been around Calvary long enough, you know, you know, there's actually a, a pendulum that swings when it comes to this topic. And, you know, from a pastor in teaching where one side of the pendulum swings over here, where it's just crazy, taking advantage of people, making stuff up, trying to, to, to squeeze people and manipulate you and everything. So that's one side. Uh, we've never, we've never, I can say that with clean conscience, we've never swung to that side at all. But the other side is you don't talk about it at all. You're just like, well, you know, if the Lord's going to, uh, if people are going to give, then the Lord's going to teach them. Yeah, he's going to teach them through the word. And so probably, I probably swing too far to that side. And over the years, the Lord has led me to say, just tell them what the Bible says, Ed. Just let the Bible say what it says. And this is what it says. And if people have made a mistake in the past, and they, you know, and I, I just have to say, some of you have been taken advantage of by another ministry. And, and just know this, you gave unto the Lord. And God will bless you for that. Even if somebody took advantage and somebody did something dumb, your heart... Now, you could have given with greed. You know, you could have given like, well, if a hundredfold return, I could really use that right now. God will sort that out. And if that was your motive, you learned your lesson. It's like you don't give for greedy reasons. You give because you're so in love with God. You're just so joyful of what he's done in your life. You're just so grateful that you're not walking around like you were born anymore. That would be weird. Like God has put clothes on your back and a roof over your head, food in your stomach. And, and even if you're in a struggling time right now, and even if you're wrestling, which I know some of you are, when you begin to compare who, where you are Compared to 99% of the world, God has blessed you to even be in this environment, that you're struggling in this environment and not in another environment where some are really, some people when they open the Bible in some countries really do cling to the words of Jesus to when they pray asking for their daily bread. You know, we don't so much pray for our daily bread anymore. I mean, there are occasions when we get desperate and we ask God for something in the moment, but God has been so abundantly gracious to us that we're praying for bigger and better things, and God sorts those prayers out too. But notice, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's this spiritual principle that Paul speaks of when it comes to giving. When it comes to giving, verse 6, Paul says, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. It's just, I, I, he just loves this sense of, of being happy to be a part of what God's doing. And notice, even as you give, you're like, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you, always having all sufficiency in all things, that you may have an abundance for every good work. Why should I give? Well, God does a work through giving. And what a privilege it is to be part of that wonderful work of God. You're listening to Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. Stop by AboundingGraceRadio.com if you'd like a replay or listen to Abounding Grace through our app. 
Search for Calvary Church or Ed Taylor and download that today. We've been blessed in recent months as we hear from people who have called or written to let us know they listen and how God is doing a great work through the teaching of His Word. We are so thankful to God for this. And if you'd like to share your story, please email us through our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. We really want to hear from you. And we also have a book we'd like to get into your hands that can help you answer common questions about Christianity and the Bible. It's 5-Minute Apologetics for Today, 365 Quick Answers to Key Questions. This will serve to help you answer questions about evolution and creation, alleged contradictions, and general accusations concerning the Bible. Answer the claims of cults and ethical issues like abortion or divorce. Again, that's 5-Minute Apologetics for Today by Ron Rhodes. Request a copy when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. We're here to serve you at 877-30-GRACE. Our number again, 877-30-GRACE. And thank you for helping us get the word out on stations like this one. As you partner with us, it's thrilling to see how God uses it in great ways to bless and encourage so many lives through the radio. Another convenient way to make a donation is online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Celebrating 20 years of God's faithfulness, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Come back next time when we'll return to our study of Hebrews. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church Colorado here in Aurora.